you're a visitor, a member at Heron, um, thank you so much. Uh, truly, if you're a visitor, there's a, a visitor card in the foyer, and if you didn't sign up, if you didn't sign that, we would really like to have that. We just try to make a little contact with you just to say, God bless you for being here. We greatly appreciate coming. We want to pray in advance for everyone for the, you know, the couple days ahead. Truly, I know we kind of tease about it, but, but people just now are getting power back, and then the, a larger storm is now kind of headed this direction. So it is something I think we should undergird one another in prayer, right? And just lift up and be safe and be cautious. So we're just going to uh, certainly do that as a church family. Today I want to take a moment to get into, for before we, before we're not, I'm not going to read a text per se. We're going to be in the third and the fourth chapter of the book of Hebrews. Last Sunday I shared with you that I was going to begin a series that I was going to extract from the book of Hebrews, and I wasn't necessarily going to do a line-by-line, verse-by-verse study of the book of Hebrews, but rather major components that, that, that as I study, that I feel like it's important for us to, to understand on a deeper basis. Now, the challenge of this, I'm just going to be honest with you, as I went back and was able to listen to uh, my sermon from last Sunday morning, is after I woke up twice during the sermon, I realized that I, I need to shift it some. <laughs> and the reality is, is this is a doctrinal book. It's a book that is um, filled with doctrine that is dependent upon some measure of knowledge of the Jewish people and their worship practices under what you and I know as the Old Covenant or Judaism. And without a working knowledge of that uh, function, then it's a difficult book to understand. It's, some, it's, it's, it's foreign to you. You have to understand. So you're going to have to on your own. If, you're, if you don't, you're going to struggle to understand some of the things I'm going to talk about. But I have chosen to narrow it down briefly, so I would not go in as great a detail as I originally had planned. However, as I have contemplated, I'm just sharing pastorally for just a few moments. Oddly enough, I have no notes on the pulpit today, and you say, Pastor, we can easily tell. And there's, there, something began to stir and shift inside of me yesterday afternoon in my prayer time as I began to get along with God and re- rehearse everything that I had planned, all the notes that I'd taken in anticipation. And a shift took place inside of me in relation to this word here today that needs something to happen. It has to happen. Without it, we will have no value to what I say. Now... What I need today is I need unction from God. And if you don't understand what unction is, is that's a supernatural ability that rises up within the heart of the speaker to convey what God has desired to speak to the church family. It's almost like he that has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit is saying to the church. The, you know, Isaiah is the one that wrote the, the poetic words that said, God, would you give me the tongue of the learned that I may have a word in season for he that is weary. I can give you the greatest of lessons that you will forget oftentimes by mid-afternoon of the same day. But if we truly get a word in season, if you have a divine unction that's upon it, a year from now you'll look back and you'll remember this message. And that's, that's the heart, the goal of this, uh, of this pastor today. Now with that said, sometimes here's what happens to me personally. I'm kind of like... Um, if I'm going to use this analogy briefly, I want you to picture with me the older circuses, not what they would have today, um, or maybe even like the, um, what do we have that comes, the carnival that comes to Hebrew once a year, and the older ones oftentimes had a Shetland pony, um, you know, uh, ride where there would be like multiple ponies tied to a rope, and they would kind of go around a peg, 
You remember that? And I'm kind of like one of those Shetland ponies. I'm tied to that peg, and often I go in circle. But when I close my eyes, I dream of being a thoroughbred. Come on. And sometimes when I, when I go to preach, I preach in sometimes in adapted and adjusted style because there is an art to preaching, just to be honest. Now, there, there's a means to communication, especially as a teacher. We want to have knowledge. We want to convey truth. I'm kind of a preacher-teacher, and sometimes I lean on my greater gifting, which is teaching. And that's oftentimes where I find myself staked to the pole, going in circles, but every now and then, I close my eyes and I become T.D. Jakes. My voice goes from this kind of high-pitched, half-tenor voice to suddenly I'm like, get ready, get ready, get ready. Jojo, Shane, are y'all ready for church in this house today? And that's where I'm at inside. I don't know if I can ever see it evolve, but on the inside of me, I know of what God's put in my heart. I know of the truth that's caused me to weep and rejoice. It's caused me to have such a, a, a up-and-down emotions, not in the negative sense, but as I see where I am and I see what he accomplished and, and what, what God can do in my life when I understand the principles that are recorded in his word. It just releases such as a supernatural energy in me. So I ask everybody to stand up, if you would, today for just a moment of time. We're going to say a brief prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you for the word of God. We thank you for what we're going to read. We thank you for what we're going to contemplate. God, in me, there's no good thing in my ability to preach. I'm limited. I'm bound by my education. I'm bound by my accent. Father God, I'm bound by certain things, God, that, are, that, that hinder the work of the Spirit. But God, in the Spirit, Father God, I can do all things through Christ. And In the Spirit, God, we can see miracles. In the Spirit, God, a transformation can be made today in the name of Jesus. And God, in the Spirit, my words can carry divine unction, Lord, in the name of Jesus, God. And Father God, I can be a humble and a contrite man that trembles at thy word today, God. And so today, my dependency is not on my study. Today, my dependency is not on my preparation. But today, my dependency is upon a divine anointing that I'm praying that you're releasing inside of me. And also, as it's released inside of me, it is concurrent with what you're releasing in the heart and the mind of the listening audience today. In Jesus' Jesus' name we pray and all of God's children said, now before you're seated, real quickly, here's what I want you to know. I prayed last night and God told me to tell you one thing. I don't say words like that very often, but God told me to tell you, you need to sit down. Just sit down. Sit down. Sit down. Just sit down. Just sit down. Pastor, I don't understand. Just sit down. In Hebrews chapter 3, very briefly to establish the foundation very quickly. We spent a little bit of time last week in an overview or a survey of the book of Hebrews so that we could do our very best to extract the context of the book. We established, first of all, the, 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 the principle that the book is written primarily, it's always exclusive to, inclusive of all Christians everywhere, but its original targeted audience was Hebrew Christians. Hebrew Christians perhaps living in Rome based upon the, the, the final benediction of the author when he said, they of Italy salute you. Many scholars believe that he's actually writing to Roman 
Roman believers, or it's not Roman believers, but Jewish believers living in Rome at that particular time. And the reason and the, uh, the overview of the book is written is because the Hebrew Christians, these Jewish men and women that have believed through the preaching of the apostles that Jesus truly is the Messiah. They're steeped in Judaism, but they have learned that perhaps in the words of the Apostle Paul in the book of Galatians, that the law was our schoolmaster to point us to Christ. And that of the types and shadows, which is referred to in the 10th chapter of the book of Hebrews, that all the things that were written beforehand were but shadows of the true that was yet to come. From the sacrifice of the Passover lamb to the day of atonement to the function of the high priest, all these were images and found their fulfillment in the person of Jesus. Jesus Christ. The author goes to great length throughout the context of the book to establish the superiority of Jesus and his ministry over that of Judaism. And it's a wonderful comparison that's made. And again, if you don't have any knowledge of Judaism, it's difficult to make the comparison. You have to go back and reread the book of Leviticus and the book of Numbers and see the implication or the, 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 when these things were implemented into the structure of the Jewish people so that you can understand the comparison that is being made. Throughout the book we discovered that there were 13 warnings that were being made to this group of Jewish believers because they were under great persecution. If you study the book of Acts you'll find on many occasions wherever, wherever the word of God was preached and wherever people responded and especially within the synagogue which was where typically the missionaries went to for the first time to minister the word of God, the initial conversion of Jewish believers was always met by persecution of the Judaizers. You can read that in the book of Acts in great detail, how that they always stirred up the people. And so what we're seeing is and what we're believing is that the Jewish believers are now being persecuted. Those that are receiving this letter, they're being persecuted by other Jews because they have accepted Jesus Christ as their Messiah. And therefore, because of that constant blow of persecution, their faith is beginning to waver. Does that make sense today? Perhaps because sometimes we think of persecution coming from outside sources. It could be somebody within their own family. It could be a mother or a father. It could be an uncle or an aunt. Somebody that is persecuting them because they have broke, in essence, their family religious heritage and they've accepted this new sect, S-E-C-T, of Christianity that has emerged from within Judaism. And so there is hostilities and there's a frustration and now their faith is wavering and now some of them are even teetering on going back into a belief system that the blood of a bullock or the blood of a goat on the day of atonement could actually take away sin. And so the author makes certain conclusions later in the book. We won't get there today, but, but he makes conclusions that, that that continual offering by the priesthood can never take away sin. But this man, Jesus Christ, again, showing his superiority over the, Jew, the Jewish priest, this man, Christ, was both the high priest and the sacrifice. Name me one person that could be that other than Jesus. He was the high priest and the sacrifice. He offered one sacrifice for sins forever. And when he completed that work, the Bible says 
he sat down. It's a finished work today. I want you to know it's a finished work. Jesus Christ has accomplished it through his blood. Come on, somebody. It's a powerful image that God wants us to see and to hear and to understand in our own spirits. But now he warns these Jewish believers, at least, and when I say he, the author is unknown, we'll suppose it's God. It's his book. It's his word. So the author, God, writing through the pen of the author here is challenging them to be cautious and to warn them of not either drifting away or slipping away or falling prey to certain elements that would revert them back to this now obsolete measure of worship before God. That's to the context, and we arrive here in the third chapter. The verses 1 through 6, we're not going to read. We're going to pick up for a few minutes. We're going to go somewhere on a little journey, and I'm going to arrive at one particular concluding point that I want you to establish in your heart today that can literally change your perspective of your own personal faith. Verses 1 through 6, the argument now is being made by the writer that Jesus is ministry and his glory exceeds that of Moses. And you have to understand that's a strong faith, a strong statement because they believe that Moses, who was the lawgiver, was the, you know, was, was at the top, perhaps even equal to Father Abraham. And now here the writer is saying, in essence, that Jesus is accounted of more glory. He's worthy of more glory than that of Moses. And that's where we find he's, the point that he's making in the fifth verse and the transition into the sixth verse and that's where I'd like to pick up and we're just going to read for a few moments and allow some of this doctrine to unfold and I want you to hear the writer as he's making an analogy which is a point that we're going to attempt to expound upon Christ as a son over his own house sixth verse third chapter whose house are we if we hold fast the confidence and it's important that you begin to see the precedence that the writer is making Holding your confidence. It's not the last time he would make this type of statement. Hold fast the confidence and the rejoicing of the hope firm unto the end. You again hear the echo in his pen or if your spiritual ears you hear him encouraging you to not give up, not go back, not fall prey, not turn back to this now obsolete form of worship before God. Hold fast to your confidence and rejoicing of the hope that's firm unto the end. Wherefore, now he begins to quote from the Psalms as the Holy Ghost saith, today if you will hear his voice. He's reverting back to, I believe it's Psalm 95, which is rehearsing a particular incident in the Old Testament that was the tipping point for ancient Israel because I believe that the writer here is seeing the precarious moment that's being created. This group of people are literally at the point where they can go one way or the other. They can hold fast to their profession of faith without wavering because God is faithful or they could fall back in into this ancient form of worship that has no value before God. Even though they continued to slay animals for 40 years after Jesus' death on the cross, none of which were accepted into heaven because when Jesus uttered his last breath upon the cross, he said, it is finished. The last sacrifice that would ever be accepted in the eyes of God was now complete in the atoning blood of Christ on the cross. And now the author, again, throughout the text, he's got this tug of war of inner tension 
tension within the people in an attempt to pull them from the brink where they're about to fall back into Judaism. He's urging them, hold on, hold fast, don't let go. He uses the terms like we sang about a moment ago in the sixth chapter about an anchor, sure and steadfast. Numerous applications are made throughout the book. And I'll tell you, that's a good word for us today because there's an inner tension that's been going on in the hearts and lives of men and women because many are not rooted and grounded in what they believe. And if you're not rooted and grounded in what you believe, then you'll fall prey to the wind of doctrine that's blowing in our culture today that's distorted and perverted and designed to destroy you and your family. But if you know in what you believe and you are firmly persuaded that what God has promised He will perform, then it doesn't matter what comes down the pike, so to speak. Uh, You'll be like a tree planted by the river of water of life. You will bear your fruit in season. Glory to God. So here's this exhortation. And now this exhortation is don't harden your heart. I don't even know. We got to protect our heart for out of it flows the issues of life. Harden not your heart as in the provocation. That's the tipping point day for an ancient Israel and let particular moment. So the writer here is quoting from the psalm which is referring back to an incident that actually occurred in the book of Numbers when ancient Israel, he says when your fathers tempted me and they proved me and they saw my works for 40 years he said I was grieved with that generation and I said they do always err in their heart and they have not known my ways. Look at this 11th verse, it's very important. So I swear in my wrath they shall not enter into my rest. And so this, this provocation, even though Israel in the wilderness, in the early days of the journey, when the waters of the Red Sea had closed over, and Moses is now standing there uh, on the other side of the Red Sea, Pharaoh's been cut off. Now Pharaoh is no longer a threat. Now the threat is adaption to the trial of going through the journey. And we know by study that there was ups and downs, constant ups and downs, murmurings and complainings and shortcomings, but they did have a a tipping point moment, a tipping point moment, unfortunately, of unbelief. And it was when Moses had brought the people close enough to the edge of the promised land that they could send out spies. You're familiar how they chose one man that represented each of the 12 tribes. 12 men were chosen. They crossed the Jordan River and they spied out the land. And for 40 days, they went on the high mountains. They went in the valleys. They looked over at the cities. They beheld the people. They even brought back a cluster of grapes between us. Uh, uh, two men had to carry it on a stave because it was a bountiful land and when the spies arrived back, the children of Israel I'm just paraphrasing for a brief moment today, when they brought everyone back, uh, when they got everyone back, the twelve spies, they called the congregation together because it was time to give a report. Tell us what the land they didn't have the ability that you and I have today with cameras and all the things that we can see and pictures and images and so they're depended upon what the, what, the, what the spy saw to convey it to the people. So for the next few hours, every man gives a report. And they do describe the land as a beautiful land, a land that's uh, uh, hills and valleys and filled with the, the rain of heaven. And, and, but it's a land, ultimately, they concluded, it's a land, even though it's a fruitful land and a bountiful land, it's a land of walled cities, it's a land of, of strong people. It's a land of men of war. It's a land where we saw giants in the land, they report. And we were as grasshoppers in their sight 
and we were as grasshoppers in our side. Ten men actually created such a wave of unbelief. Two men, I know you're familiar, Joshua and Caleb, or many of you, two men, strong leaders of Israel, rent their clothes and tried to stop this wave of unbelief. Two men said, no, we are well able to take the land. We can do it. If God, It was the first message. If God be for us, then who can be against us? They just believed that the invisible God could take and give them power and strength and they could overcome all their adversaries. I don't know about you. I'm just foolish enough to believe that very word today. If God is for us who can be against us this morning but that word of unbelief spread like leaven and all the people began to sink in their heart and ultimately they began to say why did we come out of Egypt why did we leave the bondage why did we leave the land of Goshen why we're going to elect a leader and we're going to go back to Egypt we're going to vacate this journey that we've been on we're going to return back that was the provocation that was the tipping point moment And that's when God swore, this generation will not enter into my rest. It's a pivotal moment. What he's echoing here, the writer is, he's echoing. Look at the 12th verse. Take heed, brethren. Take heed. Guard yourself today. Lest there be in any of you an evil heart of unbelief in departing from the living God. We have to guard our heart. He said in the 13th verse, exhort one another daily. That's why we need to come together and encourage one another. While it is called today, lest any of you be hardened through the deceitfulness of sin. In this 14th verse, it says here that we are made partakers of Christ if we hold the beginning of our confidence steadfast unto the end. For while it is said today, if you will hear his voice, don't harden your hearts as in the provocation. For some, when they had heard, did provoke, however, not all that came out of Egypt by Moses. But with whom was he grieved forty years? Was it not with them that had sinned? Whose carcasses fell in the wilderness? And to whom swear he that they should not enter into his rest? But to them that believed not. Nineteenth verse. So we see that they could not enter in because of unbelief. When I read this passage of scripture it always awakens within my un, my, my, my lack of theological trained mind the, the the ancient argument that has surfaced in the church many times concerning our own salvation that's when I read that passage of scripture for just a moment when we're being exhorted to not fall back not not uh you know, not, not allow an evil heart of unbelief to, to come in and, and we will depart from the living God. It, it awakens an age-old ancient argument that you see surface in the church uh, concerning whether or not you can be saved and be lost again or whether you can be regenerate one moment and unregenerate the next. And we've seen the ebb and flow of that, of that, of that conflict in the church for many years and ultimately I would like to take a moment of time to talk to you about that today because I think it's very important that you hear what I'm about to say in the next few minutes because it's going to set the precipice for the final point that I'm going to make for you this morning in, in this context as we transition into the fourth chapter for just a moment. Let me establish this today where I in no wise claim to be a theologian in any capacity. I, as I read scripture 
sure I have a practical understanding of the Word of God. But I'm frustrated oftentimes by the debate. The debate sometimes rages over various terms, often by authors that have actually created doctrines, and we term particular spiritual beliefs based upon the uh, the doctrine of the author. And I'm not going to go there today. I'm only going to respond as it is found in the Scripture. Uh, what I want to talk for just a moment of time about is your regeneration for just a moment. Just very briefly, your regeneration. See, church family, before we came to Christ, we were unregenerate. We had no life in us. We were uh, people that were was void of the life of God. The life of God was not in our hearts. We could know God from afar. We could know God, uh, you know, in our emotions. We could know God in a sense in our understanding, but we couldn't commune with God in the realm of the Spirit. We had to have the indwelling Holy Spirit to create life within us. And when Jesus Christ died on the cross and gave up the ghost, 40 days later he sent the Holy Spirit, or 50 days later he sent the Holy Spirit into the earth. And now the work of the Holy Spirit in the church today creates regeneration in the heart and life of a believer. When you believe in Jesus Christ, let me tell you, you become instantly a different creature than what you used to be. You become changed by a supernatural work of the grace of God that's on the inside of you. His Spirit joins with your spirit identifying you as a child of the Most High God. It's sometimes difficult to understand. Science can study your psyche, psychology. It's your soulless realm. Science can study that. Doctors can study your flesh. They can study your appetites. They can study your body. We see that as medical science. But science has not found a a microscope or an MRI or a CAT scan that can search out the realm of the spirit. But let me tell you today, I am a triune being this morning made in the light of God. I have a soul, I live in a body, but I am a spirit today. His spirit joined with my spirit and declared me to be a child of the most high God. I know God not just in my mind, I know God not just in my emotions, but I commune with him this day at the deepest level of intimacy that I can know him and that is by his spirit. He's joined together with my spirit and so I am one with the Lord in my heart of hearts. That little doctrine I just expounded to you is what we call regeneration. That which was unregenerate has now been made alive by the Spirit of God. Many have debated then, debated was whether or not once you are made regenerate, can you be made unregenerate again? It's a debate that is waged in the church. And I've seen error on both sides of the doctrinal basis. A noted theologian that I know well and respect well said oftentimes from extreme sides, truth hangs somewhere near the middle. And I'd like to take a moment to expound for just a moment where the error that we have made in Pentecostalism for so many years is that we would not allow anybody to ever be settled in who they are in Christ Jesus. And so therefore, we felt like you could be saved one week and lost the next That's one of the reasons why we used to have such powerful altar services. Because it was the same people who were being preached under condemnation to feel that they're unsaved because they sinned in the course of the week. And so therefore, they're coming back to the altar to, in essence, get resaved. And I believe that God is establishing a mindset in the church where we're realizing that that doctrine has proved to be futile and is robbing from us the full completion of what Jesus died on the cross to provide for us. Now, on the other hand, there are those 
that wage the argument that but once you're saved, you're always saved, or it's the doctrine that we know as eternal security. And so that doctrine then fights against this other doctrine, and we sometimes find ourselves in separate camps. But what I want to show you today for just a brief moment, this is my belief based upon this passage of Scripture, if I can, that I believe that the author is wanting us to see something, if we can, for just a moment. That once you're saved, once you're genuinely born again, the thing that you have to guard above and beyond all else is your heart. You have to guard your heart. Because what we've done in the past, what we've done is we've looked at your life, you professed Christ as Savior, but then you still had sin or the activity of sin or the motion of sin that Paul said in Romans 7 and 5 in your flesh. And therefore, once we know you profess Christ, but now you've got the motion, you're still struggling with the motion of sin, therefore we now say you're unsaved. And I just think that's wrong in the eyes of God. And because what we have to guard ourselves, let me just say this today, the thing you've got to guard yourself from is unbelief. 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 Because what sin can do, sin can harden your heart. And so what I've learned, this is my doctrine, and I, I, can't, I won't write a book, I won't put it, post it on Facebook, but here's what I believe personally. I don't believe that it's the motion of sin that would separate me from God. If it is even possible to be separated from God once I have been sealed by the Holy Spirit. But if it is, then it lies in this principle right here that the deceitfulness of sin can harden my heart till I no longer believe what I once used to confess. I used to confess that I was saved by the atoning blood of Jesus Christ. But if I continue in sin long enough, is it possible that my heart can get so hard and I can be bound to such unbelief that I no longer confess that Jesus' blood is sufficient to provide? Are y'all hearing me today? And so I just think that we have to arrive at a place in our heart of hearts where we understand that what Jesus accomplished at the cross was so amazing and so wonderful, so powerful that it can supersede all that you can even ask or think. And that your merit and your worth and your value is never based upon your works because your works were weighed in the balances and they were found lacking. And so God did one work in the person of Jesus Christ. And when he finished that work, he set down. It's a completed work. And his exhortation to you and I today is, if that he has set down, God has finished his work, Jesus accomplished his work, then you need to finish your work and you need to set down as well. Glory to God. You need to get up in the morning and know that you are saved by the indwelling work of the Holy Spirit. And that God is not waiting to turn the lamp off, so to speak. Waiting for you to stumble in some act of weakness of the flesh and suddenly the light goes off again. I think that's foolish in the eyes of God, in my personal opinion. I believe I've been called by God to sit down together in heavenly places in Christ Jesus. His Holy Spirit has joined with my spirit and declared me to be a child of God. And I'm going to live and move in a doctrine that encourages me. And I don't think anybody's going to pluck me out of the Father's hand. That's my belief. You can argue your own when you get a microphone and a pulpit as well. But I want to talk for just a moment about that rest. That rest. That rest. There is a rest, transition fourth chapter for just a moment because this is where I want to conclude. 
Look at this. The author here is warning them about the motion of religion. Let me tell you today, I've got to warn you this morning. The motion of religion can be as deadly as the motion of sin. See, oftentimes we are so quick in the church to judge the activity of somebody's flesh and deem them a sinner because we see the motion of their flesh. We know it's sinful behavior and therefore we deem them a sinner. Well, then what we do often on the counter opposite is we see somebody in religious motion and we deem them righteous. Let me tell you, religious motion can be just as damaging because it's by faith. We're saved by grace, come on somebody, through faith. Through faith, through a simple trusting of God. And so here the author transitions as he's writing to these men and women that are feeling the weight of the persecution of the Judaizers to go back to this now obsolete form of worship in order to gain that peace that God wants to give them. And he says, therefore, therefore, first verse, fourth chapter, lest a promise being left us of entering into his rest, any of you should seem to come short of it. For unto us was the gospel preached as well as unto them. But the word preached did not profit them because it was not mixed with faith of them that heard it. Neither will this word be of profit to you unless you mix it with faith today. Come on, somebody. You have to mix it with faith this morning. So let's read further. For we which have believed. How many have testified? That's me. I have believed. Come on. So I'm going to. I'm just going to sit down. I'm going to sit down because the motion of religion produced in me no form of righteousness whatsoever. Produced in me no form of righteousness. And so as God says, I have sworn in my rest, he said, or my wrath, if they shall enter into my rest, although the works were finished from the foundation of the world. And he spoke in a certain place of the seventh day on this wise, and God did rest the seventh day from all his works. And in this place again, look at this, if they shall enter into my rest, Seeing therefore it remains, look at this, because this is my concluding point that I'm going to make today. Daryl, join me on the platform if you would. Seeing therefore it remains that some must enter therein, and they to whom it was first preached entered not in because of unbelief. Again, he limiteth a certain day, saying, In David, today, today, after so long a time as it is said, today, if you will hear his voice, harden not your heart. Verse 8, for if Jesus, not Jesus as Christ, but Yeshua as in Joshua, could this Joshua had given them rest, then he would not have afterwards spoken of another day. For there remaineth, look at this, a rest to the people of God. He that entered into his rest, he also has ceased from his own works as God did from his. Let us, last verse, Labor, therefore, to enter into that rest, lest any man fall after the same example of unbelief. So all of you here today, let's take a moment and we're going to briefly talk about the rest as we conclude. As we conclude. We can first make the analogy of the rest that was spoken of to the children of Israel. The rest was being brought into the promised land. They stumbled over the fact that they did not believe that God could take them into a land that had houses they didn't build, vineyards they didn't plant, wells they didn't dig, and God could rid the land of the inhabitants of the land and establish them in it. And they, couldn't, they did not believe that it was possible. And therefore it cost them their access into the, will, in, into the promised land. And here 
So we're saying, well, what is that rest for us then? That using the analogy, well, it's not necessarily heaven. I don't think it's heaven that we're speaking of today, but it is a contentment in who we are in recognizing that God's grace and goodness is being measured out upon us and we haven't done anything to deserve it. Could that be the rest that God is speaking of here today? And so those of you that have preached people saved one day and unsaved the next, and let, let me make a point that I think we need to grasp for just a moment today, real quickly. If you, by your works, could not produce salvation, then what would make you think that by your religious effort you could maintain your salvation? Oh, that's a good word right there. You know what you need to do? Here's what God told me to tell you. You need to, you need to just sit down. The work has been finished. Jesus Christ on the cross expended his great blood. The most precious thing that God had to offer was the blood of his son. It superseded all the blood of every goat and bullock, of every sacrifice of the past. And it anticipated righteousness by faith, and not by the righteous requirement of the law that would deem us all as unlawful and as unholy and as lawbreakers. But what it did was provide for us an atoning work of grace that allows God to commune with us based upon the merit, not of our works, but by the merit of his work on the cross of of Calvary glory to God and once you get that down in your spirit even when you stumble you'll get right back up because now God is not like okay oh that's it right there we got two strikes then the third one you're out no you're settled you're at peace God's given you a rest he's given you a rest glory to God come on isn't that good today a rest. He said there remains a rest for the people of God. God is wanting you to enter into it. Be at peace with the work that he's done at the cross. So the concluding point is this, to affirm this principle today for just a moment through the term or the use of an analogy. For you to see your faith and who you are, I just want you to know God's desire. His heart towards you is good today. It's hard. You say, Pastor, but I got sin in my life. I'm not talking about to the unregenerate person today. To the unregenerate person, you need to be born again. But to the believer that's still wrestling with some sin component in your life and all those things, let me tell you, Jesus' blood was sufficient. It was sufficient. You're accepted in the Lord. And, and today, God will strengthen you. There's a work of grace. You can come boldly to Him. Matter of fact, he was tempted and tried. The end of the chapter says he was tempted and tried like you are yet without sin. And if you'll just but come to him, if you will but come to him in your travail, in your struggle, in the difficulty, wrestling with that habit, trying to overcome this, trying to move past this, knowing that you stumbled, if you'll just come to him, he said, you'll obtain mercy and you'll find grace to help you in your time of need. He's not going to turn you away. He's not been like, well, thank God they're out of here now. He's so thankful that you're a part. He loves you so much today. And if we could just believe that in our hearts. To affirm this truth very quickly, my mind raced back for a few minutes last night to a familiar story, one that I preached probably four or five occasions here. And I won't be as dramatic as I've been in the past, but I'll just allude to it briefly today because I think this story echoes what I want you to see and through the theater of your mind for just a moment to create for you this principle that we just need to see today to understand that God wants us to be at peace, be at rest in Him. 
complete. The motion of sin is not separating me from Him because the penalty for sin was met at the cross. The motion of religion does not make me any more righteous. What makes me righteous is by faith. I believe. Come on, somebody. Therefore, I believe. I believe. I guard my heart. I believe. David found himself, 2 Samuel chapter number 9, David found himself as the king of ancient Israel, a time when God had given him peace in his kingdom. But as you know the story, I've preached it on more than one occasion. There came a moment in his heart, it ached to do something good for the sake of the man that he loved so much who was now deceased, deceased for many years. See, as you read the story of David, you'll find that many years earlier, David and a young man by the name of Jonathan had cut covenant together. They were actually blood brothers. Their faith and their friendship was so, so real and genuine, they literally wounded themselves, put their hands together, clasped them together to bring their blood together. They made a blood covenant with each other. They promised to be kind to each other all the days of their life. They gave each other an exchange of the resources, and they even promised to be kind to their children and their children's children. It's a powerful image of the grace of God and the communion that we can have with the Father. And the story tells us that on a fateful day, Jonathan dies in battle. David was fighting his own battle at the time and could not certainly come to his aid. Jonathan was actually the rightful heir to the throne of Israel. He was the son of Saul, the firstborn son of Saul. And Saul's the first appointed king of ancient Israel. But for those of you that have studied, you know that Saul had been rejected by God and David had been chosen. And so the kingdom was being transferred from that of Saul to that of David. And so the story then tells us that many years later, again, as David is in his house there in Jerusalem, the old city of Zion, that I don't know, did he have a dream one night? Did he look down and see the mark of the covenant? I don't know, but he just said, he called his servants together one day and he said, is there anybody left of the house of Saul that I may show kindness to for the sake, listen to that, for the sake of Jonathan. And Ziba, one of the servants of Saul, said, well, there, oddly enough, there's one known descendant that's left. His name is Mephibosheth. You're familiar with Mephibosheth. Mephibosheth is the son, the actual son of Jonathan. The story tells us earlier in 2 Samuel, I believe the fourth chapter, when news came that Jonathan had died in battle as well as his father Saul had died in battle, that there was panic in their household. And they gathered up all the living descendants of Saul and they ran from the house because they knew that war would come to their house and all the descendants would be slain. And a nurse was carrying the five-year-old son of Jonathan, Mephibosheth, by name, in her arms. And she went down the stairwell. uh, And as she did, she stumbled like the preacher did on the ice. And she dropped him. And she dropped him so violently that when she picked him back up, he was lame in both of his feet. And for the rest of his years, he lived. He lived lame on both of his feet. The Scripture doesn't tell us anything about his, uh, uh, his childhood, anything about his teenage years, anything about his young adult years. But when Ziba said, I know there's one, he's living in Lodabar. Lodabar in the Hebrew means the place of barren wilderness. And here's what my attention was drawn to for a moment as I close with these words real quickly today. The scripture says that David turned to Zeba and said, you go and find him. And he finds Mephibosheth. And I picture it in my mind different ways, and you can picture it in your mind. And they brought Mephibosheth. Now, Mephibosheth is lame. He probably has one crutch or two crutch. He's probably being assisted by 
Saul's, or excuse me, David's servants when they actually bring him in before David. And when they bring him in before David, Mephibosheth is fearful because he thinks that this is it. I will end, it will all end right here. This is my demise. David has searched for me all these years so that he can vindicate his wrath upon me right here and right now. And so he just falls down. He does, you know, he just falls down right there, David. And he just, he just falls down uh, before David. And, and David says to him, he says, Saul, or excuse me, Mephibosheth, he said, I want to show you kindness. I want to show you kindness for the sake of your father, Jonathan. And Mephibosheth falling before him says, but David, why would you want to show kindness towards me I am but a dead dog have you ever felt that way God why would you do anything good for me I have no value I have messed up look at my broken life and David picks up Mephibosheth and said as long as you yet live you know where you're going to sit at you're going to sit at my table as one of my sons and every day when my cook comes out and he takes one of those iron triangular things that he announces it's time to eat. He said, I want you to come in right beside Absalom, right beside Solomon, right beside Amnon. I want you to get right there. And when the cook comes out, this is the home of the throat row. You get your hand up right there because something's coming your way because I'm going to bless you, not because of you, not because of who you are, not because of what you did, but because of the covenant that I made with your with Jonathan, your father, long years ago. You rest right here. And if we could ever get this in our heart, that God formed a covenant with his son on the cross of Calvary, and his body is marked to this very day to remind God of that covenant that you and I can now just rest in his presence. He blesses us not because... My God, if Daryl was playing a Hammond B3 organ this morning instead of a Yamaha electric keyboard, I don't know what. Then you would live your day every day. I picture Mephibosheth this way. Now, not everybody probably was so happy to see Mephibosheth. And I've, I think that once that switched inside of Mephibosheth, he didn't care what everybody thought. He jumped in his spot right there. And he just, you know, how, you know how those people just get in your conversation when you didn't invite them to? Come on, you know what I'm talking about. People just get in your conversation and he's all up and he's talking, yeah, yeah. And, and they're like, why are you even here? But it doesn't matter. Right? It doesn't matter. It's not what he did. It's not what he might not do. But it's what his father did. Perhaps that's why the writer said there is a rest. You've been trying to work this out, your religion. You've been trying to come at peace based upon your behavior. Uh-oh. You've been trying to arrive at a place of peace based upon your behavior. Your behavior fluctuates up and down, especially during the early stages of your Christian experience. But God's not blessing you because of that, or he's not holding back blessing because of it. Favor and blessings coming. And it's resting upon you when you are at rest and you believe that the redemptive work of Jesus Christ was sufficient enough to allow you to commune with God at the most intimate of levels. Rest, rest, 
Sit down. That's what God told me to tell you. Sit down. You're striving. You're going through the motions. You don't have peace. You think, well, God wants to kill me. He doesn't want me to say. It's foolish. Get it out. That's doctrinal ignorance. Get it out. Get it out. You say, Pastor, I have sinned. 1 John 2 and 1 says, My little children, these things I write unto you, that you sin not. It is God's will that you sin not. But if any man sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. And he's not traumatized by what you are going through. He's, he offered one sacrifice for sin forever, and he sat down. He's not being slain every time you sin. His blood was sufficient. It reached all the way back to Adam's transgression, and it reaches all the way ahead to the last person ever born of a woman and their sin. It was sufficient. Come on, somebody. He's sitting there right now awaiting. Come on, he's awaiting. I like this so much, I may preach sitting down next week. Listen, it'll change your life. It will. Be at rest. Be at rest with God. Our heads are bowed, eyes closed. I've done all I know to do. All I can do this morning, I'll probably preach a long time. It's 12.04 this morning. I don't know when I started, but I do know that what I've shared with you is this principle of faith extracted from the Word of God that can truly liberate your personal experience with God if you'll stop arguing over these doctrinal issues and just believe, just believe, just trust in Him. Just believe. God has given to every man the measure of faith. You have the ability to believe. Is there anybody here today that would just say, Pastor Brown, I'm going to be honest, I've struggled. I professed Christ as my Savior, but I've fluctuated back and forth, up and down, hot and cold. Well, the word of the book of Hebrews is hold fast to your confidence. Did you note that? Hold fast to your confidence. He didn't say keep doing what you're doing. Keep being religious. Keep going through your, uh, your motions of, of religion. No, he didn't say that. He said hold fast to what you believe. Does that make sense today? He said hold fast to what you believe. And if you believe, you will overcome. Who is he that overcomes the world? But he that believeth that Jesus is the Son of God. What is it that overcomes the world? Even our faith. You will overcome those temptations in your flesh by faith in Christ. By faith in Christ.